for half a century, WJPZ Syracuse has been the greatest media classroom on the planet. We've trained students from the 1970s to the 2020s on how to run a professional radio station. But the lessons learned and relationships formed go far beyond studios and transmitters. Taking a look back through the eyes of those who experienced it. This is WJPZ at 50. Welcome to WJPZ at 50. I am John Jagay. Today I'm joined by an alum who I've only gotten to know as a friend uh, in recent years, but I really enjoy getting to know his backstory and hanging out with him everywhere from Syracuse to Nashville, Tennessee, and that will be Jay Nackles from the class of 94. He is currently the VP Consultant and Marketing Director at Coleman Insights in Raleigh, North Carolina. I think I got all that right. Welcome to the show, Jay. Thanks, Jag. I appreciate uh, you having me on. When you go to Syracuse, there are a lot of New York kids, a lot of Boston kids, a lot of Pennsylvania kids. You're a West Coast guy. How did it be that you came out uh, ending up at Syracuse? Uh, the uh, grand dreams, which ended up being delusions of being a sports broadcaster, like so many of us. Oh, my God. That's like half the podcast guests so far, myself included. <laughs> I know. Yeah, I, I dreamed of sports broadcasting. And plus, I wanted to get away. I love her, but I needed to get away from my mother as far as possible. So I went to the <laughs> other coast. Almost. You end up at Syracuse. Ian, how do you end up at JPZ? This is a story you've probably heard before, too. So the sports broadcasting thing, I thought I was going to get it twice. So when I was 15, I got this internship, which I applied for a position at KNBR at San Francisco, which aired my beloved San Francisco Giants. And mm-hmm. I had, um, again, dreams that ended up being delusions of working at Candlestick Park, uh, you know, in the booth with a fellow Syracuse or at that time, just Syracuse alum Hank Greenwald. Uh-huh. And so I applied for that gig and didn't get it. I was 15 and a half. <laughs> and they ended up giving me this internship at a station called X100, which was an MSCHR station. And I was really angry about it. You know, <laughs> I told my mom, I don't want to do this. And of course, I ended up loving it because, you know, the day I got there, Will Smith was in the lobby at the time known as the Fresh Prince. <laughs> and I ended up just being completely starstruck. They let me do research, board operating, promotions. It was just this unbelievable where the guy at KNBR ended up just making copies. Literally, it was like a Saturday Night Live skit. Wow. So I was just so fortunate. But still, when I got to Syracuse, I still wanted to do sports broadcasting. Went to WAER like so many of us did found out that the chances of ever being on the air there were almost nil, mm-hmm. walked over to JPZ and, you know, asked, well, what are the chances of being on the air here? And they're like, I don't know, what are you doing at midnight? <laughs> <laughs> Sounds like a very familiar story. So so you end up walking into the station, getting on air at the station. And what else did you do there? Take me through your time at the station. So I, I just loved being on the air at JPZ. And, and then between... I guess it was sophomore and junior years when I became program director. And that was just, that summer was so, so much fun. I stayed in Syracuse and programmed all that summer and just loved it. So yeah, it was basically air talent to program director. Because you're such a music guy and a radio guy, I've got to ask you, what songs from that era playing at JPZ or anything that stick out to your, in your memory? Oh, there's lots of them. The early 90s was a funny time for CHR because you had this kind of blend of pure pop songs. You had some hip hop, like I remember Naughty by Nature, like OPP and Hip Hop Parade. I just Mm -hmm. have this memory of like sitting on the couch with my roommates and, you know, putting the hands back and forth like, hey, ho, (laughs) hey. And we actually presented a show with Naughty by Nature at some club in Syracuse and 
it ended up being a total disaster, not by, <laughs> by our fault. But we ended up, we were watching the show from the soundboard and all these parents, you know, brought their kids or dropped their kids off, right? Because I think it was like a school night. Okay. And, and you were waiting and waiting and come like, it's like 11, 11, 15 at night and they still haven't taken the stage. And I remember John Marsh, my friend and music director, he literally, he goes up to Tretch from Naughty by Nature and he says, come on, man, the kids are waiting. You got to take the stage. <laughs> and Tretch is like, he goes, man, I ain't taking the stage. So we get paid. Oh, it turned out the club owner hadn't paid them yet and they weren't going to take the stage until then. And so all these parents came and picked up their kids. The place was like half filled now. And they finally took the stage. It's WJPZ at 50. Hey, it's Jag. You're probably listening to this episode of the podcast because you know the person I'm interviewing. But one of the true joys of this project has been learning the stories of everyone in the WJPZ family. When you're done with this podcast, I'd encourage you to check out an episode with someone you don't know. You never know what you might have in common with your other WJPZ relatives. Looking back at half a century of broadcast excellence. This is WJPZ at 50. You have had quite the illustrious career since graduating. You've been in many markets at many stations. Give us the quick tour, if you would, of how you got your first gig upon graduation and where you've been since. So there was the internship first in San Francisco at X100. And then, like many of us, I got a position at Y94FM while I was at JPZ. And that was one where literally I sent at least six air checks to Tom Langmire before he finally hired me. I would not stop pestering. <laughs> and he eventually gave me, okay, kid, here's midnight to six on Friday and Saturday nights. Just like at JPZ, what are you doing tonight at midnight, right? Yeah, you know, and it's funny too, because I was in a fraternity at Syracuse. And so I would leave, you know, just when everyone was starting to get wasted on Friday and Saturday <laughs> nights, there was me getting in my car at like 11, 20 p.m. and driving to, to Plum to, to work at New City. And I did that for quite some time once they finally hired me. And then when I graduated, I went back to, so this was December 93. I went back to San Francisco, didn't have any job. I was applying everywhere I possibly could. And then something happened to the overnight person at Y84 and they called me back to work full-time in Syracuse. So I came back to work at Y and then worked my way up there. So, I mean, literally it was almost every shift, I think it was overnights to nights to afternoons and then APD, music director. And then there was a, a moment in 95, 96, where Alan first was the program director. And so I was his APD and we worked on flipping a, what's now Hot 107.9 which was a country before that, so we, or no, oldies before that. We flipped that station and I was working at Y and then I got hired at K101 in San Francisco, which was amazing because that was a station that I had grown up listening to. And so I went back to my hometown, did K101, and then it was Buffalo for a station called Alice at 92.9, it's a pop alternative slash modern AC station. Then went to Detroit and programmed another Alice station, Alice 106.7, which was more of a early rock-leaning adult hit station. And then I got to Raleigh, which is where I was for the longest time, and I programmed a station called 96 Rock there. And then I left radio for a few years, and then five years ago came to Coleman to do research. What has your role been at Coleman, having had the experience both on air and in the programming side? Really, really valuable. Most people at Coleman, there are some of us, we come from different backgrounds for sure, but I come from the deepest radio background. 
a number of us have had experience in the radio industry, but I think having that, so I had to learn a lot of the analytics side, even though I had had a lot of exposure to research in my radio career, I needed a lot of training on that side. But the fact that I had been on the radio side so deeply, I think, you know, it's the speaking the language part. Yeah. Right. So, you know, you can really understand what programmers and brand managers are going through from that side when you've been there yourself. To me, that's one of the most valuable things. I've sat in your chair. I understand what you're up against. Like, let me hear, let me help you work through these issues you might be having. Right. You know, part of the job, for example, when you're doing a music test for somebody is you get in their database, right? It's like send me selector or music master. Right. And so you're helping them through that. You're helping them sort categories and that radio experience really comes into play, but also just understanding the dynamics of their day-to-day job on a bit of a deeper level is really helpful, whether you're doing a perceptual study, music test, focus group, anything. What lessons did you learn at JPZ on the air as a program director you think that have served you well, Jay, in your time, both in commercial radio and in the consulting side of things? The structure is the biggest thing Mm -hmm. because from the get-go, it's funny to think about like today, there is probably less air checking being done in professional radio, commercial radio than, than has ever been done before. Right. And some of that is just the stresses on the industry and people's titles and then wearing so many hats. But it was drilled into us at JPZ just how important that was. Like, no, you have to be air checked and you have to air check people. And you learn how to do a music meeting and decide what goes on the air. And you learn the sales dynamic and the dynamic between departments and how to write a promo, how to produce it. Like all of that stuff was learned first at JPZ for me. And even perfectionism, like (laughs) in the sense that, you know, you don't put crap out, you better get it right before you put it out. And, you know, what, I don't know, what college station is so intensely focused on that level of perfectionism? I'm not sure, but (laughs) mine was. It's funny to, to see some of these same stories that come up with all these different guests on the podcast of the things they learned at JPZ and the lessons that they learned You know, being a program director at WJPZ is not an easy task. It's probably your first time being a program director. It may be your first time leading people in any sort of supervisory role, particularly that many people. And in some respects, and I can say this with the benefit of having worked as a program director at commercial radio stations for over 25 years, in some respects, it's harder than a commercial radio station. Part of that is it's the first time that you deal with conflict management and conflict resolution. One of the things that you need as a manager is empathy. And it's a hard skill. Understanding what other people feel and are going through and their perspective in situations is something when you're younger that to most people does not come easily. Um, Rather than if you have a disagreement with somebody, you dig your heels in and you get angry and you don't budge from your position. And, you know, some of that definitely happened at WJPZ with me. And some of that conflict led me um, to separating from the WJPZ family for some time. But, you know, with the benefit of perspective years later, even those experiences make you better. And you realize that later. And with time, You know, not only did I realize how valuable that was for me, those experiences, even the the challenging ones at WJPZ, but I definitely 
recognize the importance of having WJPC in my life, that grew exponentially as the years went on. Wow. Jay, are there any significant events in the history of JPZ that you were part of that you remember fondly? I'll tell you something that I'm really proud of. When I was there in the beginning, you know, the way that we chose what music to play was the index card and paperclip system. You familiar with that? No, explain that to me. I, I feel like when I got there in 98, there might have been the last remnants of that. So walk me through that, if you would. There shouldn't have been, but we'll get to that. <laughs> so if you were uh, at JPZ at that time in the early 90s and you were on the air, you had a list of currents that were on sheets of paper that were laminated or, you know, put in, in a sleeve that was on the glass in front of you. And they were color coded. So you had, you know, your A's, B's, C's and whatnot. And you tracked them with a paper clip. Huh. So after you played one, you moved the paper clip down. And the next time that came on on the clock, because that was the other thing that was in front of you was the clock for the hour, right? And so when an A came up, you played the A and then you moved the paper clip down. The next time A came up, that was the next one you played. Okay. So it was always in that order, right? So this is pre-selector and music scheduling software and all that. This is by pen and paper and index card. Okay. We're getting to that. Yeah. Then you had a box of index cards and they had colors on them as well. And they corresponded to the gold categories or, or the recurrence. And if I remember correctly, you had some more flexibility with that. Mm -hmm. So you could go through and, you know, if, for example, you said, well, look, I want to play MC Hammer, not Michael Bolton after Strike It Up by Black Box. <laughs> Feel free. <laughs> you know, go to the next card. And that was the way we chose music. So I felt that, as you know, the mission of JPZ is we're here to train broadcasters and, and make it the most real world experience as possible, of course, is why the station is, is CHR. And so I felt like at that time, the radio industry was not using index cards and paperclips <laughs> anymore. And I felt like it was probably time for us to move to some scheduling software. And so I think John and I, my music director, John and I, we applied for a grant from RCS, which is the maker of Selector, and we were awarded a grant. And so it was during my time there that I brought Selector to WJPC. That's amazing. And that's why I love doing this podcast is those little nuggets of the station's history that may have been temporarily lost that we're kind of uncovering here. Jay is the program director that brought Selector to the radio station. That's fantastic. I love that story. Are there relationships from JPZ that you take with you to this day, people that you're still in touch with or any stories you want to share about them? Oh, definitely. I, you know, I was really fortunate it's such a staggering level of alumnus that we have coming out of JPZ, but the all-star team that was there at that time was ballistic. <laughs> and for example, Dave Gorab, of course, was my GM and, you know, now he's one of the heads of Sirius XM. And I was the one that was air checking Dion Summers, <laughs> who of course now a head of Urban for Sirius XM and Kendall B. He and I this is a funny story. Kendall B and I hosted a short-lived program together called CTV. Okay. You ever heard of it? No. I, I, now you got me piqued my curiosity. We decided, because of course videos were still, music videos were still big back then, right? Right. I think it was Kendall's idea. Kendall goes, hey, you and me should co-host a video show. And so it aired on the university TV station, which was right across the street, you know, the street, right across the hall at Watson. Yep. We were able to get some videos from the record labels. And so we would take those videos, we would host our, our show. 
Our theme song, by the way, I think was Check the Rhyme from Tribe Called Quest. <laughs> we had a great intro where we literally, Kendall and I like walked up in slow motion <laughs> outside Watson into the hall. And then it was us sitting down. It was very 90s. It was very cool. Or at least we thought it was. <laughs> Kendall will probably not confirm or deny the statement, but I feel like we didn't have, if I remember correctly, we didn't have enough videos that were sent to us, like promotional videos to actually make a show. So we may or may not have actually recorded videos off of MTV and then superimposed the ZTV logo we had made over the MTV logo. <laughs> and I think we're probably about 30 years out about past the statute of limitations on Jay. I think we're okay here. <laughs> More than likely. And who knows where those tapes are? Kendall and I, neither of us know what happened to the tapes. I just have the great memories of, of that and, and Kendall and so many great people there. But one friendship that's become very special is Jeannie Shad, who she and I were not close then, mm -hmm. but I guess about 10 years ago, we reconnected and then there were just some shared experiences in particular, probably around the same time she and her husband, John, adopted a transgender child and one of my kids came out as gay and then told us that they were transitioning. So that shared experience was like just this connection going on at the same time. And she's just so smart and so kind. And I've just come to really, really like her and her family. And so every time I go out to, almost every time I go out to Los Angeles, I go and see her and her family. Jeannie is wonderful. I know that uh, when I was dealing with some career question issues, you know, she was one of the first people that reached out and I picked her brain for advice. You're right, she's so smart. She's so wonderful, just like so many people in the Alumni Association. I'm really glad you mentioned her. Any other funny stories from your time at JPZ? I love the Naughty by Nature uh, and the nightclub story, but any other stories on or off the air that you look back on years later and, and laugh? You know, there were a lot of concerts, obviously, that we went to. I remember there was a show at the State Fairgrounds and it was Richard Marks with Tom Cochran opening. Tom Cochran, <laughs> Life is a Highway. Yes. Yep. And so we went to the show and we were taken backstage and Tom Cochran is sitting there and it's as Canadian a thing as, as you've ever seen. He's got a cooler full of moose head. The beer. The beer. Yeah. And, you know, at that time we weren't of age yet. And Tom Cochran's <laughs> like, you boys want a beer? So naturally we said yes. <laughs> and illegally on behalf of WJPZ had some uh, moose head lager with uh, Tom Cochran. That was a fun night. Oh my God, that's funny. <laughs> and I think it was that summer. There's been so many great promotions at JPZ, as you know, giving away cars and trips. So the promotion that I put together, I think that summer that I was PD was called Get a Clue. Okay. It was like a trip somewhere uh, that we were giving away, but you had to get these clues throughout. And then we gave it away this thing where we revealed uh, certain like squares and pictures as he went along until it finally got to the winner. It was so convoluted. <laughs> it, was, it was one of those that was like, sounds good in your head. Oh, get a clue. What a great name for a promotion. And looking back on it now and knowing what I know now about how listeners consume radio and their lack of attention spans, <laughs> I would have never, ever read that promotion again. World's greatest media classroom. You learned that lesson in that classroom. Don't do a promotion called Get a Clue that's got too many visuals and is too complicated. Exactly. Jay, I do want to ask from the position where you sit now at Coleman and having had this experience on air and programming, what is your opinion of where radio is at as we get into 2023 here? It's not as doom and gloom as I guess some would, would have you believe. 
but where it's at is at a crossroads of investment in itself or not. Okay. And there's a couple of things. I mean, radio, like many industries, but you know, you really see it in radio is, is it gets stuck in the same habits yeah. that it's had over many years. And, you know, there's, there's a difference between doing things that are best practices and not being willing to step out of the box and do some different things. So radio really needs to start innovating where it can and taking some chances, going out and finding talent that are non-traditional radio talent and listening to them, listening to younger listeners and determining, you know, what they want out of the medium. Because I just think that we're not inviting them to the medium the way that we need to is, is one of the biggest issues. And, you know, from a marketing standpoint, that's a real big problem. You know, we have a measurement in research that we call unaided awareness. And that's a simple way of saying, you know, on a top of mind basis, we ask people, you know, how many radio stations, we're talking specifically about radio or any brand, how many radio stations can you name whether or not you listen to them? Huh. And that is something, you know, over time is declining precipitously. And ultimately, you know, people are less likely to think of the brand. And, and so some of it is how much of it can we save from a younger listeners? Like, well, can we get them or can we not get them? But we have to at least try, right? That's my point. We have to at least try. Just the idea that the demos are getting older and folks that grew up with radio are getting older. And whether it's millennial or Gen Z or dare I even say now Gen Alpha after them, didn't grow up with radio the way a lot of us did. And there are so many more options and it's just got to be hard to compete with those other options. And how does radio do it? Well, some of the ways that, that I was just talking about, if you look, for example, at some of the entertainment options on YouTube, I mean, my kids, my 19 year old's favorite morning show is Rhett and Link, which is a YouTube show. Huh. And they have millions of followers. They have their own convention, for God's sakes. Oof. You know, they go out on tour. Yeah. And you know how long the show is? How long? 20 minutes. Huh. Bite size. Bite size. So he can listen to the entire show every single day and he doesn't miss a day. And then they have offshoots. You know, they have members of the cast that do their own shows. But the point is, this is a show that can't miss listening for him or viewing, depending on whether or not he's watching it on YouTube. This is actually going to be the blog tomorrow. I blog about Mr. Beast. Mr. You know who Mr. Beast is? No, but the blog will be out when this publishes, so we'll link to it in the show notes. Tell me who Mr. Beast is. Mr. Beast is a guy with 100 million followers on YouTube. Wow. Yeah, and his story is amazing. He started on YouTube when he was, I was like 13 years ago. He's still only 24 years old, right? <laughs> but this guy has so much money and he figured out kind of the formula of making these viral videos but what he does is radio stunts. Huh. I mean, he literally does like last person to stay in the circle and, <laughs> you know, which is no different than like last put to put the hand on the car right, right, or last right. to keep your lips locked, right? He does all these stunts. And guess what? Kids go absolutely bananas for them. Because why? Because they've always gone crazy for them, right? Huh. And then what he did was he got these companies to start sponsoring him and started doing all these endorsements. And then he created this basically a philanthropy wing where he goes out and gives all of this money away. But these companies are paying him to go give all of this money away. So he'll do stuff like he'll surprise someone in a town and just give away $10,000 just because huh. this kind of thing. And now he started his own burger chain 
called Mr. Beast Burger. <laughs> it started out as a, uh, I know, and it started out as, as being done in ghost kitchens around the country. And then you'd get it through like DoorDash or, or Uber Eats or whatever, and it would show up as Mr. Beast Burger. Well, in September, he opens up his first brick and mortar location. And it's in a mall in New Jersey, okay. kind of like the, the newer mall in, in New Jersey. Jag, I am telling you, watch this documentary. So this team of the, this pair of YouTubers, which have a great following themselves, of course, they have a million followers. <laughs> they do this documentary on the opening of Mr. Beast Burger in New Jersey. And he comes to the, you know, he comes to the thing. And, and the thing that fascinated me about this 24-hour look at Mr. Beast wasn't so much his background and all that, which is fascinating in itself, but it just focused on the 24 hours before they opened up this location and how involved he was and the decisions that he made along the way, which is really interesting. But if you look at the number of people that are there that drove from, some people drove cross country to this thing. Oh my God. And they're screaming. It's like the Beatles. Instant concert, new kids in the block. Took your time, yeah. It's staggering. And the fandom and the passion for it is just outrageous. And I couldn't help but think to myself, like, that was our game. Like, radio stations used to do those studs. And we used to grab that attention. And he's basically taken some of the stuff that, you know, the radio was known for. It was unique. It was always fun. It was, you know, totally relevant. And he's doing a really good job of that on YouTube. So I think, you know, radio just has to, first of all, attract some of these people yes. over to the platform because they also know really well in an organic and grassroots effort how to get attention. So the content is similar. It's just that the delivery mechanism is different is what you're saying. No, that's exactly right. And I suppose that radio in many respects depends on where you're looking. I mean, there are some radio people and radio brands that are doing a great job with social media, but there's certainly always room to do much more. And I just see this mastery going on out there with some of these talent that are on, on YouTube. You fish where the fish are and then bring them back to radio is what it sounds like you're saying. And is there a need to invest locally in radio as well, as opposed to sort of McDonald's and Walmarting all of radio across the country? That is just so important, the local angle for sure. I mean, to me, that's the biggest differentiator going forward when possible is to be as hyper-local as possible. There's a it's really interesting to look at up in Baltimore, you know, the the Baltimore Sun, I think is the big newspaper, right? That's been there forever. Mm -hmm. Are you familiar with the Baltimore Banner? No. I think this happened about a year ago. This guy decided that he was going to take on the Baltimore Sun by being hyper-local. Okay. And he created this digital newspaper and hired all these people. It's kind of like, in a way, it's kind of like what The Athletic did, almost like in reverse, what The Athletic did to local sports writers and grabbed all of these people to do the local beat for the athletic mm -hmm. for digital sports coverage. Baltimore Banner went out and found all these people because what happened, the Baltimore Sun and all these newsrooms around the country are cutting staff. Got it. Yeah. And so he's like, I'm going to go find all of these people that know how to report local news and I'm going to hyper localize it. And he's created this hyper local news outlet in Baltimore. I really hope it works because to me, that should be the future. Awesome. So one other quick story about localism. So my family owned a furniture store in Wilkes-Barre, Pennsylvania. Okay. For many, many years, for decades. It was called Nackless Furniture. We had a jingle. Nackless, 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 where customers send their friends. 
Love it. Which people still sing to me today. Power of the jingle. Yeah. My family and I were driving up because we visited uh, some family up in that area last summer. As we're getting into town and you get the radio stations starting to come in, I tuned it to 98.5 KRZ, which is a station that I grew up listening to when I would go visit my grandparents <sighs> okay. in the Wyoming Valley back in the day. It was like 3.15. So I knew who was on the air, right? And I turned to my family and I said, this guy that's about to come on the radio has been doing afternoon drive in Wilkesbury, Pennsylvania, since I was coming here, you know, to visit my grandparents <laughs> in the 80s. And sure enough, he comes on the air and it's this guy jumping Jeff Walker. And he has been doing afternoons at KRZ since the 1980s. And he did this break, the very first break we listened to. He did this break about Montage Mountain, which is both a ski resort, but then they've also got this amphitheater there. And, you know, over the summer, it's the, the whole festival circuit or, you know, concert circuit comes through there. And they had had a concert the day before. And I don't even think it was a, a top 40 artist. It was a country artist. Mm -hmm. But to his credit, he's telling the story because that didn't matter. I'm not thinking about format. I'm thinking about here's something that affected my community. Apparently what had happened is Montage Mountain is really hard to get in and out of traffic wise. It gets all bottled up. And so it was taking people hours, literally, like, first of all, thousands of people missed the show. Oh, wow. And then it was taking people like hours to get out and call after call and the way they were dealing with this on air was so well done and so local. And I just felt like that's the content you have to look for. Like you could be on the air for 50 years if that's the content in your town that you're focused on. Jay, I got to say, it's been as we look forward to the 50th anniversary of the station's launch and celebrating that at the banquet in March. It's been great to see you back at the banquet in recent years. I know for a while you weren't coming, but now I've seen you back almost every year. Yeah, it really it, it fills your soul by coming back to the banquet. Hmm. I really look forward to it now on a, on a yearly basis and appreciate it more than I, I ever have. And actually, you're someone that JPZ is kind of the gift that keeps on giving. <laughs> you know, you're someone that, as you mentioned at the top of the podcast, I mean, you're someone that I only connected with a few years ago. Matt Friedman, I think, introduced the two of us. I'm sure it was. Yeah. And that's the thing. I mean, here, I mean, I graduated um, a long time ago. <laughs> I can't even count that high. And here we are still making connections in the industry. And that's kind of a thing that never stops, which is pretty special. I think so. Jay, the feelings are mutual. It's been great getting to know you these last few years. It's great having you here on the podcast. And if you don't know Jay, he's somebody that you should know because he's a great guy. He's uh, someone that knows a lot about a lot, especially in the world of radio. And you'll see him hopefully this March in Syracuse, right? I'll be there. We'll leave it there. Jay Nacholas, thanks so much for joining us today. Thanks, Jay. The WJPZ at 50 podcast is created entirely by the staff and alumni of the world's greatest media classroom. It's hosted by John Jag Gay, class of 2002. Editing help from James Bames Grundy III, class of 2020. Imaging by Maureen Cooper, class of 1999. And Ed Lacombe, class of 1985. Podcast artwork by Marty Dundix, class of 2001. Follow WJPZ at 50 on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, YouTube, or wherever you're listening right now.